This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we're here having a summer with you. How are you feeling, Danielle? Feeling pretty good. I'm hot. Always, always hot, but feeling good. Oh, yeah. It is. It, it was so hot so early. Did you feel? Yeah. It was. Well, we're getting like the. We're in a real climate change summer as per usual, where it's like just vacillating each week from hot to rainy to boiling hot to cold yeah. to boiling hot, even hotter, the hottest day on record on earth ever to cold. And it's just like, oh, yeah, I was like somebody um, I was like listening to somebody here in Georgia talk about the weather and they were talking about how like it hadn't been this hot so early because apparently it was like june was so hot in georgia like they broke all these records right and they were like they said something about el nino and i'm like el nino again (laughs) who is this motherfucker (laughs) el nino are we going back to like myspace what the fuck (laughs) i was like okay please don't come at me people who know a lot about weather okay but i was like I thought El Nino was like a one-and-done situation. I didn't realize that he's going <laughs> to stick around like all the time, causing fucking, pulling antics like a little leprechaun. Like, I'm going to make it super hot, and you're going to sweat in your house. <laughs> I also didn't think it was a summertime occurrence. Like, I thought El Nino was like, oh, no, it's winter, and oh, God, who cares? But, yeah, yeah I just didn't know it was like a nonstop. Yeah. I, I thought that I, I didn't realize, yeah, that that he was just going to plague us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we did get this great email from Jess F. And uh, she uses she, her pronouns. And Jess writes, hey, pals, my inner critic made me edit this and send it again. OG listener here. Thanks for giving me my film fix while I'm in counseling school and don't have much time to sit down for a flick. I am writing because I was raised by a diehard Ishtar fan, which has inexorably shaped my taste in movies. I know, right? Like we had the ridiculous soundtrack on a homemade cassette to listen to as we drove to the big city for orthodontist appointments. This is the level of Ishtar superfan and evangelist my mom was slash still is. P.S. Did Ishtar ever get the cult following it deserves, or is it just us? So my question is this. Is there a movie you adore that, quote-unquote, flopped, and which you think would have done better in any other era? Jess F. Good question, Jess. Also, what a hell of a way to describe your parents. 
diehard Ishtar fan. <laughs> like that says a mouthful. An Ishtar evangelist is what <laughs> is what Jess said, which it means that it's, it just has, it doesn't sit in a silent fan world. They're <laughs> they're out there, you know, basically creating a ministry around this film. Yeah, while amazing. you're out there getting your fucking braces pulled around your mouth, your parents are out in the the lobby <laughs> in the waiting room talking to the receptionist like about, have you seen Ishtar? Why not? <laughs> Let me play you some songs from this movie. I made you a cassette of the soundtrack. <laughs> Please tell me your parents handed out mix- Ishtar mixtapes. That's all I need to know. <laughs> Amazing. But this is a good question. I agree. Do you have an answer? Or do you have some yeah, answers? I've got some answers for sure. I think um, <laughs> Bicentennial Man, come on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Flopped and needed to flop, but still <laughs> hilarious. It's always hard for me to tell what's a flop because if I like a movie, I just like it. So I'm just basing this on like box office numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think So I Married an Axe Murderer was technically a flop from 1995, yes. but it is mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorite movies and the most yes. quotable movie of our generation. I, I, absolutely, 100%. So it I, might not have like made a bunch of money, but it was like still foundational to most of us. Yeah. I have a So I Married an Axe Murderer t-shirt. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. And I, yeah. and I do agree with you that the, the concept of a flop is so... It's almost liquid, you know what I mean? Because there, yeah. there's there's reasons for flops, right? Because there's like the idea of a movie that was really promoted and pushed out there, you know, when it came out that just wasn't successful. But then there's also like movies that never even got the chance to really like be put out there. Like the studio kind of deemed it a flop before beforehand and was just like... Right. Well, we're not. We're just going to shelve this movie. We're not even going to put it out. So, just like two very different scenarios, you know. Yeah, and I think it's also like if you're going by number. This is why it's so volatile too to like to the movie watching audience that you could love something and you went and paid and saw it at a theater, but because it didn't earn like a hundred million dollars the first two days, it's considered a flop and it has a shorter run and it has less advertising. And it has less, like they just decide these things beforehand mm-hmm. in a lot of instances. Like I think another example for me would be children of men, um, the Alfonso Cuaron movie from 2006, which I think mm-hmm. was technically a flop, but it's such a great movie. And if that movie came out today, it would be an absolute blockbuster. Yeah absolute blockbuster it's such a good movie it has such an amazing cast the michael kane character in that movie was like my go-to image for when i posted about like how my quarantine was going during the height of covid because mm-hmm. i'm like i'm michael kane in the woods in a sweater with scraggly hair just staring at the fucking ceiling and it, it just was perfect like his look in that movie was so good but also you've got just the concept of the film like there's the synopsis of the film basically is that babies are not being born anymore. And then this Clive Owen character gets wrapped up in this kind of heist Mm -hmm. when they realize that there is a pregnant girl in their midst. And so they have to like scramble to figure out, you know, what do we do with this girl and how do we save her and how do we get her to safety? And it's just, it's an incredible concept. And I just, I really love it, but I don't think a lot of people have seen it. And I think it was technically a flop. So, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think about this often. 
because, you know, I I sort of dabble in flops, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> programming-wise and taste-wise. So I guess my answer for this, I'm going to go like, you know, old school, I think, because there's there's I think about Elizabeth Taylor often. We've talked we've talked about her often on this podcast. And we've talked about her kind of 60s and 70s career specifically about the idea that you know, these actresses, these classic Hollywood actresses were being put out to pasture or something and like she right. was in all these like quote unquote shitty movies because she was, you know, out of her prime era and she was only starring in like schlocky B pictures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wrote about this movie in my book um called Secret Ceremony from 1968. And Elizabeth Taylor was actually in these two movies very close together that were made by the same director, this director Joseph Losey, who I'm a huge fan of. I'm not sure we talked about him on the podcast, but he was actually an American director that was sort of exiled in Europe because of the blacklist. And then when he was in Europe, he made like all of these really weird, interesting kind of art films and kind of had this like second act to his career. And Elizabeth Taylor was in two of them. And Secret Ceremony being one, this other one called Boom! Exclamation (laughs) point. Kind of like a, Zucker Abrams Zucker film, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> with an exclamation point. But like those movies, both of those movies were flops, apparently, when it when it came out. Obviously, it was not alive in the late 60s. But you know, I think personally, if the if those movies would have come out today, they would essentially be like A24 films. Right? Mm-hmm. Like exactly. In, in term, especially Secret Ceremony, which I, well, we're going to have to talk about this movie at some point on this podcast because it's so bizarre. It It's basically a film starring Elizabeth Taylor and Mia Farrow. Essentially, at the same time, she was in Rosemary's Baby. Secret Ceremony came out pretty much either right before or right after Rosemary's Baby. And it's this kind of strange, baroque psychodrama about... A woman who loses her child and a child who loses her mother kind of separately. And then the two, you know, find each other. The whole movie is creepy. There's kind of an occult vibe to it, which, as we know, people love the occult right now. Everybody loves a witch. And I just feel like if, if the movie had come out, like, today, people would love it so much and think it was really strange and unusual and it would be very much like a neon slash A24 movie. Yeah. I actually think similarly with Boom. I feel like Boom, even though I think it's a little a little more, a little harder to watch, I think, narratively speaking, that movie would be well-received these days too. Because I think at the time, yes, I mean, you had like late 60s kind of counterculture stuff happening, but I feel like Nowadays, people are kind of open to weirdness and 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 kind of want to see films that are like not in a linear narrative structure. Yeah. Plus, if you want to get down to brass tacks, I feel like I think Elizabeth Taylor, if she if her entire career had been like time shifted, where she was like in her 
out to pasture period now, she wouldn't be. She would be like Tilda Swinton, essentially. Right. She would be like a, a working actor in, you know, probably taking bizarre roles, but also being her age. And she would, you know, for the most part, be able to be making movies, I think, personally. Yeah. But that's just me. Agreed. I, I, I mean, at least maybe I'm projecting. Maybe that's what I want to have happened. But I feel like, you know, Elizabeth Taylor could go weird in her later period and it wouldn't be yeah. as big of a shock as it was back in the 60s, right? Completely. Oh, completely. There's just a little bit, there's a little more runway now for directors especially, but studios, I think, to realize, because they're always at the crux of what gets made or doesn't get made. And I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of studios have finally, especially since that movie came out, have realized the power of, you know, stories that, stories that are fueled by an actress who is willing to do something different from the thing that set her up as yeah. a star. So there's a lot of like dark turns with Jennifer Aniston kind of shit going on and people seem to love that. So again, I don't know if those movies do well with like those Jennifer Aniston style movies do well at the box office, but I think people are at least interested in giving that space to the actor, you know, to the actress to kind of explore um, something different. And I think a lot of that came from actresses just starting to fund and produce their own films where they're yeah. like, you know, I want to get this made. I, I'm going to star in it. And my name should be enough to get people through the door, even if it's not a subject matter that they're used to seeing me tackle. But, you know, actresses had to make enough money to become producers. And Elizabeth Money was certain. Elizabeth Money, Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, (laughs) (laughs) God, got that. You know, Elizabeth Money, Eddie Money's sister. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth and Eddie Money were my neighbors growing up. And they were were legends. (laughs) They always gave out full-size candy bars. At Halloween. (laughs) Okay, now I'm imagining a universe where Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Money were siblings. (laughs) And now you have to write that script, Danielle. Sorry. You said it. You have have to. What else am I going to do? As of this recording, I'm still on strike with my union. I could write whatever weird shit I want. No one's going to see it. Just write it for me, your friend Millie DeCherico. Who I'll cares about you, I'll start sending you personalized scripts and short stories. <laughs> Thank but, you. <laughs> but Elizabeth Taylor was certainly like a high-paid actress, but I don't think that 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 space was there for her to kind of dictate the role beyond what she chose to act in. So I think it's just yeah. a little bit of a different scene now. And I also think a lot of things like... Um, what was I thinking? Well, like, The King of Comedy was technically a flop. Came out in 1982, technically a flop. But, like, yeah. again, has since been vindicated as a brilliant film. And I also think of things that I think would hit now in a different way. I think King of Comedy would have hit differently. Again, it's gone on to become more of a cult classic, like, very revered film because of De Niro and and but this, and Sandra Bernard is great in it. But I think people just love this notion of anyone who's against the inf- against the system. So I think King of Comedy would have been huge if it came out now. Yeah. But also there's movies that I think are, again, not very well viewed. Like Michael Mann made a movie called um, The Insider mm-hmm. in 1999. And the cast is incredible. It's like Russell Crowe, Al Pacino, Christopher Plummer, Gina Gershon. And the movie is about a, a chemist who works for big tobacco, so to speak, and he Mm -hmm. becomes a whistleblower. 
And the whole movie is about him deciding to do this interview for 60 Minutes and his life and family are threatened. And it's just such a like a, a quiet and beautiful film that I think, again, if it came out now in this current climate of people wanting to reveal things about systematic oppression, I think it would be huge. And I also remember the soundtrack being incredible. I don't know... I don't know if this is a proper memory, but I believe there was a Diamanda Gallus song on the soundtrack, mm. which is like fucking incredible because if you know Diamanda Gallus at all, it's like very wailing, mournful kind of music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also think Lisa Gerard and Peter Bork did most of the soundtrack and they're also incredibly musical and and instrumental people. But I just remember the soundtrack of that film adding so much to the tension of the film. And I think that kind of music is more revered now. And, and, you know, kind of the, like, these are the movies that walked so that Johnny Greenwood could fly. (laughs) Like, like the soundtrack became so much a part of the tone of the film. So yeah, that, that movie was technically a flop and it's Michael Mann. But yeah. it was technically a flop because of the money aspect of it. But it told a cool story. It had a great soundtrack and had an incredible cast. So I think that, you know, again, all of these changes that have happened socially would lead to a lot of these films being much bigger hits than they were. Well, and like also there's always room for the generations are always going to like do like critical reappraisals of things. And I find like that's happening right now with like a lot of nineties comedies, like, so I married an ex murderer. I saw like somebody the other day online, like go really hard defending <laughs> that movie. Nothing but trouble. Oh my that God. Movie? We've talked <laughs> about it in a bonus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where somebody is like, like, guys, y'all are wrong about this movie. And I was like, oh, it's happening. Like, honestly. And I see that this all the time, especially with, like, younger people who I think are now kind of mining their youth, right? Yeah. And I, I always sure. feel like it's a middle school thing. That's kind of where I think a sweet spot is for a lot of people where... I think the things that you saw in middle school were, like, formative in a way. And I feel like there's this new generation of kids who are like, oh, all the stuff that I liked in middle school, a.k.a., like, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, is, like, something that I need to rewatch and re... You know, it's like, freaking the reason why Brendan Fraser is back. I mean, it's like people are, like, all about Airheads and Encino Man again and, you know... Honestly, like, I think that there's a a ton of movies that were flops, like, at a certain point that are going to come back in that kind of, like, remember this type of way. Like, yeah, you know, like, I already see a little bit of, like, late 90s, early 2000s stuff. Like, somebody, I saw somebody talking about mystery men. Do you remember Mystery Men? <laughs> Janine Garofalo with that skull bowling ball, like her dad's skull in a bowling ball. Incredible. Yes. Oh, no. We're going to talk a lot about Janine this episode. But you know what yeah. I mean? It's like the thing of like, I mean, it's 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 happening already. And I feel like, I mean, now whether or not Mystery Men, actually, they should do Mystery Men now. I mean, I think now I think with it'd be all huge. of the, the superhero shit that, that we've all been witness to, we need like a, a send-up again. Completely. I oh, I love it. Also, our our friend Maggie Sirota, 
who we were in a group chat with, yes, wrote a really great article for Spin a few years ago about So I Married an Ex-Murderer. Um, so definitely check that out. But it's 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 I love exactly Maggie like even more knowing that, by the way. Oh yeah. Maggie, <laughs> if you look up her writing, like Maggie Sirota is is just such a dear and she's so smart and so funny and she has a great newsletter where she just kind of dissects things, pop cultural things that I think a lot of people have forgotten. And she's so smart about it. Like, I just, I really want Maggie to write a book. But she always, whenever she digs into movies or whenever we're talking about films, it's usually just such a smart take on something that is so common to to us as a flop or something that's under-discussed. So I think that, genera- like you were talking about, that generational impulse to go back and re-examine yeah. um, is alive and well with, yeah. with most of us and especially with the nostalgia, the love of nostalgia of generations even younger than us. So Yeah, yeah. Well, Jess, this was such a great email. I'm so, so glad that you wrote in and... Um, yeah, it was really, uh, really fun to kind of think about this. It was a nice thought experiment. Completely. Right? Beautiful. And gave us a lot of films to recommend to y'all. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, everybody go and do a critical reappraisal of Nothing But Trouble. Oh, I want Lord. a five-paragraph essay book report in our inbox by Friday. <laughs> We're giving out real homework assignments now, not just watching movies. We need oh, yeah. essays. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. These summer episodes have been so fun. Like, I have not had this much fun watching a double feature. Like, every week in the summer, like, that we've been doing these episodes, I'm like, what's the next uh, batch of movies we have to watch for the podcast? And I'm like, oh, my God, yes! (laughs) Yes! It's a treat for everyone, including us. Yes. And I think I'm first this week. And my movie, I mean, my movie comes with a little bit of a disclaimer, um, and I'll talk about it, but there's, it, it was released in 1987. There's some derogatory language that really is jarring, was jarring then and is even more jarring now. But overall, it happens minimally, but I just want people to be aware that, like, yes, I understand and I feel the same way. But the movie itself is, I think, an underseen classic. I don't think a lot of people have they, they talk about the other one that came out around this time, a sure thing, but not really a lot about this one. I I got to be completely honest with you. I had never heard of it. <gasps> never saw it, never heard of it. Isn't that crazy? Word. What? Yeah. That blows my mind because this is also the hottest that John Cusack has ever been. <laughs> Which we will I, also I talk about. Inkling, I had an inkling that that's why you picked this movie. I just have to say. It is the hottest that John Cusack has ever been. And he, I know we've discussed him in the past, and I'm going to discuss it again. But there are <laughs> reasons why this is the hottest he's ever been. My, and your movie is, holy shit. Your movie, I cannot tell you how much I loved The State on MTV mm-hmm. to the point where I taped 
they had a marathon and I taped the whole marathon on video cassette and kept it for over a decade and kept a VCR for over a decade because they hadn't released it yet on DVD. It took a long time and it was all music and all the rights and shit, but they took a long time for the state to become available. But they were probably one of my favorite TV shows when I was in high school. I went to a few tapings in the city. What? You're so cool. I fucking love it. I don't know if anyone remembers, but there was one commercial for this for the state where they would talk about their art director, Trevor. And he was this really cool black guy with dreads. And when I went to one of the tapings, as we were leaving, a friend of mine and I were leaving, Trevor was just kind of hanging out on the street. And I was like, oh, my God, Trevor! Like, who cares about the cast? Like, that dude was so fascinating to me. But I loved every single thing about this cast. They have gone on to have incredible careers. I know we'll talk about it. But this movie, when it came out, was a bomb to those Mm -hmm. of us who were really missing the state. So it's crazy. It's absurd. It goes well. I cannot wait to talk about your film. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to go ahead and go first and jump in. My movie was released in 1987. The screenplay is by Steven Lisberger and Steven Karabatsos. It was directed by Steven Lisberger, and my movie is Hot Pursuit. I'm supposed to be in some tropical island paradise eating lavish spread, not on some rat-infested hellhole with some unscrupulous buccaneer rogue type. The cast is cool in this movie. It's John Cusack, Robert Loggia, who also has never looked better. Robert Loggia is bringing something to the table in this film that I have never considered with him. I've never looked at him and thought, huh, cute. And maybe it's because I, he's I do believe that's the only time this has ever been uttered in any right? podcast in the history of podcasts. Words have, that have never been uttered in life. Ah. Even from his like wife or family, I'm sure. What 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 moment did you discover that you had the hots for Robert Loja? Was it when he had his entire sailor shirt opened? Once he was on that boat shirtless, I was like, huh, okay. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I'm in a very horny period of my life. What can I say? Yo, summer is is a horny time. Let's just say that. (laughs) (laughs) I've cracked open the seal. I've moved the rock from in front of the cave. And it's just freewheeling (laughs) horniness now. But Jerry Stiller is in this movie. Be- a young Ben Stiller is in this film. Like, it is a real... Uh, Paul... Fucking Keith David yes. and Paul Bates. Like, it is an incredible cast. And I just can't believe... I don't think a lot of people have seen it. Because, again, for us, it was one of those movies that was on cable all the time mm. uh, during the summer. So I'll just give you a one-sentence synopsis, and then we'll get in. A horny prep school teen puts himself in the path of danger and destruction while trying to join his girlfriend and her family on a Caribbean vacation. Yes. Perfect. Okay, simple. Simple. The movie opens with a longish hair John Cusack sitting on the top bunk of in his dorm room of his prep school, just eating an, an entire hoagie. And that is that is the cornerstone of my sexuality, I think. That was the watershed moment for you. Just right out the gate. And this is why we all wanted to destroy his dick in the 80s. He was effortlessly cute. When I looked at him, I was like, oh, he's such a baby face in this film. Yes. The freckles, the teeth, like everything. (laughs) He still has his characteristic stomp. Like there's one point where he goes to the hallway to answer the phone. And it's very high fidelity just watching him walk 
I'm like, oh, that's a very distinctive walk. But he's just chilling out. He's trying to study. It's, you know, it's it's Easter week and, you know, they're about to go on spring break. And he's just, he's stressing out. And in a short, in a short amount of time, you realize that he's kind of a, a scholarship kid at this prep school. And he's really stressed out about passing all of his exams. So he's in a science lab and studying. And this cat burglar shows up. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, you're watching this person, like, scale this fucking building and, like, with the mask and everything. And it turns out it's his girlfriend, Lori. Because that's what you had to do if you were a woman who wanted to get laid in the 80s. You had to put on a mask, scale a building, and just surprise a man. Yeah, you had to learn parkour, basically, in order to <laughs> get laid. It was rough. And he's, like, excited to see her, and they're so cute. But then they fight because he wants to study... And this is where some of that unfortunate derogatory language comes into play when they're describing another student, um, which I hate. But they have this fight because she's like, I'm horny. Let's go to this fucking fabulous Thunderbirds concert of all things. God, I was like a big fan of the fabulous Thunderbirds. Of course you were. When I was a kid. Of course you were. (laughs) Of course I was. I was like, are are these middle-aged men dressed in zoot suit type gear? playing, like, blues music? Is it, like, is it a band that, like, a 57-year-old man would love? Yes, that's is my it, that's my band. Is there apparently. a chance? All we need to do is add Bruce Willis singing about wine coolers, and that would have been <laughs> your Lollapalooza <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> and, and shirtless then, Robert Loja 100%. as the MC. Throw in Eddie and Elizabeth money and you're set. Ah! <laughs> That's your your concert extravaganza for the summer in 1987. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor in like a floor-length gown with gloves <laughs> doing the like Ronnie Spector dance from the Take Take Me Home Tonight video in the back. <laughs> oh no, God. I would do this concert now. This is where I need holograms to be. I don't need to see Tupac in a fucking hologram. I need Elizabeth Taylor, Eddie Money, the fabulous Thunderbirds, whoever of them is dead. They could all be alive. I'm not sure. My apologies if they're all still alive. And 80s Bruce Willis. Let's get these fucking holograms popping. Listen, I, will go, our... I will go to any casino where this show is happening right, right? now. In, we should, we should be Marner. able to use holograms to make our own dream concerts is all I'm saying. <laughs> So they fight, and this is also where we we learn that he's supposed to go on vacation with her and her family for 10 days right after his exams. So the unfortunate event that kicks off this movie is that he flunks his fucking, his chemistry exam. Mm. And Mm. he has to stay behind for a makeup test, so when they pull up in their, you know, family Volvo station wagon to come get him, he's like, I have to stay and do this fucking makeup test. And Lori's dad already fucking hates Dan. So when yeah. she comes downstairs and tries to lie and then his roommate blows that lie out of the water within seconds, his yeah. dad's like, that guy's spineless. Like, he's just such a fucking prick of a dad. But then we also get this incredible moment with the the chemistry professor, Kowalski, who comes to his room, which, fuck that. Like, mm. prep schools already, fuck that. But coming to my fucking room, if you're a professor and I'm a teenager, I do not need that kind of fucking pressure. That is weird. But he comes in with good news and he kind of is like, you know, what happened? Why didn't you study? And what's this heart doing here? Why are you doodling on this shit? But he kind of lobs him an easy question that allows him to pass without having to do the makeup exam. So he runs to the airport 
Dan is like on a fucking mission, but he's missed the plane. So this is what kicks off the hot pursuit is the rest of the movie is him trying to catch up with Lori and her family. Yeah, Lori's family is fucking wild. Her dad is such a goddamn weirdo. At one point he asks, they're going to this place called Laguna Del Mar. And he's like, oh, don't, don't you want to see the place where you were conceived? And I'm like, dad, can you dial it back 18 notches? And he just full on goes into this tale about like, oh yeah, your mom was drunk on margaritas basically and we banged and then you were born. And I'm like, I don't think anyone needs to hear that story also their last name is cronenberg yeah (laughs) which i guess it hit me at that moment i was like oh that's an actual last name that people can have it's not just one guy who makes movies from canada i guess maybe like other people can have that last name (laughs) and this is when it hit you in 2023 watching a 1987 film that you've never seen before (laughs) Oh, oh God, God, I fucking... I love how soft-brained we get in the summer. Uh, <laughs> like, just boiling these brains to yeah. mush. Oh, my God. Oh, that is so funny. But, yeah, like, they're... So, he's just... Like, they're going on this yacht, and they're very moneyed in, like, that 80s way. But then she also has this little sister, Ginger, who's a fucking G. Ginger is such a goddamn weirdo. <laughs> she is so fucking funny. And she's she's very... She's used minimally... But she instantly calls the Ben Stiller character a douchebag. And then once they actually get on their yacht, she's like, oh, yeah, I've already, like, rifled through everyone's cabin. (laughs) (laughs) She's just a mini cat burglar on the rise. And she's fucking hilarious. So nobody knows that Dan is trying to run after them because cell phones didn't exist back then. So he does get on a plane and he flies to this place called um, Porta Rosa. And then he has to call the hotel or the place where he thinks Lori and her family are staying and leave a message that's like, hey, I'm trying to catch up with you. But that's the only way he could have even indicated that he was on his way. Like once you were traveling in the 80s, you were basically off the grid until you came back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it it hit me so hard watching this film where I was like, how did anybody travel successfully before a cell phone? Like it just seems so... <laughs> So, like, scrapped together, you know? Oh, yeah. It's, you know. You, you had to plan every detail before you left, and if one thing went wrong, you were fucked. Yeah. If you didn't have a paper ticket, if you didn't have your paper <laughs> ticket, you weren't able to travel. Like, it's like, there's a lot at stake. And you Pre- better get those, those goddamn traveler's checks ready, because credit cards were even few and far between for most people. Yeah. I, no I debit cards. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I never went abroad until, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s. So there was technically, like, an inter- an internet grid or something. But, like, watching this movie, I was like, how the hell did anybody go outside of their house without, you know, phones, you know, anything? Like, when the phone was dead, it was just dead. Like, there's no text, there's no anything, like... Just going for groceries in the eighties was a, a real, a real time. I, I, like, let's say you go to the grocery store and you run into someone, you have a conversation for forty five minutes. You were technically dead to your family for those forty five minutes. They're like, we expected her back an hour ago, and since she didn't come back, we're just assuming she's gone, kidnapped, yeah. dead, whatever accident. Like, we don't know what happened to her. Yeah, yeah, because the entire time, Lori is trying to call him, tr- trying to call Dan to be like. Hey, I miss you. Where are you? And then he's like on the way to her, but she's on a boat. 
Yeah. So she, so he can contact. I mean, it's just it is wild. It's wild. It's truly wild. And I love I love the kind of plane, trains, and automobile, like the yeah. the mom and home alone energy of yep. trying to catch someone, trying to hit a certain point so you can meet up with someone. So he is really panicking. And we have, after he leaves this message for her, a, a truly racist man steals his cab. Like this white guy gets into his cab and is like, oh, by the way, watch out for the locals. And I'm like, how about watch out for you? You're just pulling some fuck shit and stealing my cab. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? But because of that, he has to get a ride with some locals because he notices that one of them is wearing a shirt that has the logo of the hotel where the family is staying. So he gets into this VW thing, which if you have never seen this car, you have to look it up immediately. It is one of my favorite cars of all time. The VW thing and the fucking Plymouth Barracuda. (laughs) Best cars in the world. I would absolutely, if I were the kind of person who could mentally get myself to a place where I thought I could own two cars as one person, I would buy a Barracuda tomorrow. Yeah. But if you could if you could imagine yourself as James Glickenhouse, you would definitely own <laughs> that car. I I think it's criminal to own like multiple cars when you're just one person. But if I did not think it was criminal, Jay Leno was top of the list of like oh, when the revolution comes, we're raiding his house first. <laughs> There's no need for you to own that many fucking cars. You're one person. You cannot sit in all those cars at once. You're not letting anyone else drive them. It's fucking criminal. But he gets in this fucking VW thing with Cleon, Roxanne, and Alfonso. And Alfonso is played by Keith David, who you will know. If you don't know his name, you will absolutely know his face. And they're just these cool-ass people who are like, yeah, hop in the car. We'll fucking take you there. The only problem is that they're holding a few pounds of weed and they hit a, a road check. And so they have to take a detour. And it's kind of funny to see this, like, white prep school guy in the car with them. And he's very uncomfortable. And then when they pull out the weed, he's like, is that all weed? Like, he's never seen that much weed in his life. Yeah. But they take this shortcut and they end up getting crashing their car while they're trying to cross a river. Like, the car gets stuck. So they spend the night in the jungle just smoking weed and throwing machetes. You know, like you do. <laughs> I do that all the time. All the time. Anytime I'm waylaid by even a little bit, I'm like, let me fucking throw some machetes, smoke some (laughs) weed. And there's this really funny line where he turns to Alfonso and he's like, are you really just planning on spending the night in the jungle? And Alfonso says, no, man, we're not planning it. We're just doing it. Which is such (laughs) like an islandy thing to say. Like, just go with the fucking flow. Like, just this is what's happening. We're going to get the car out in the morning. But Dan is like, fuck no. I'll, I'll get the goddamn car out using the Pythagorean theorem. And he tries to, like, lever the car out of the water. And it's just very funny to watch him not be able to kind of sit still in this situation. So he decides to take off on foot in the morning by himself and just starts rolling down hills and getting cut the fuck up by the jungle. And the twist here is, of course, that the car gets towed out in the morning by a bus, but he's not with them. So they actually pull up to the hotel and see... Lori and her family, who they recognize from a picture that he was, he's been carrying. Mm. And if he had just stayed with them, he would have been able to, the movie would have been 20 minutes long. He could have met up with the family and been on the boat. But the yeah. other funny thing about this scene is that they're trying to tell her, oh, hey, we were just with your boy Dan. Did you meet up with him? Did you find him? But racism prevents them from telling her. Because as soon as her family sees these three black people coming at her, the dad is like, no, 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 no. (laughs) He fucking panics. Yeah. 
And I'm like, oh, dad, if you had just not just been a little bit less racist, then maybe your girlfriend could have hooked up with her boyfriend. But no. Um, So they're like, fucking fine. (laughs) Like, whatever. We tried to tell you. So Lori and her family take off. Dan does finally right right as soon as they take off, he basically rolls up to the hotel and he, you know, kind of gets back together with Cleon and Roxanne and Alfonso and they run to catch the boat. They don't they don't make it. They're all laughing at him like, what the fuck, dude? You know, your fucking girlfriend's racist family is terrible. And that's why you're not in that boat right now. But what happens next is a bunch of near misses of him trying to connect with Lori and her family after they get on their yacht, the Crystal Slipper. And what's hilarious here is the characters that he meets along the way. So Ben Stiller is on the boat with Lori, and he's playing a very young hornball. And he's on this yacht, and he's trying to hit on Lori. And they're just, like, on a yacht having the time of their lives. Meanwhile, Dan is super sad. He's in a bar on the beach. He orders a single rum, and they give him the whole bottle. (laughs) And he's just getting—he's drunk to the point where when Robert Lugia finally walks into the bar— He's, like, drinking his rum out of a model sailboat (laughs) in the corner, just getting fucking trashed. And the Robert Loja character, Mac, is basically like, hey, I'm looking for this boat, the Crystal Slipper. I'm looking for the family. And even though Dan is drunk, he's like, I know know who that family is. I'm trying to catch him, too. So he Mm -hmm. basically gets kidnapped. He gets super drunk, passes out. Mac kidnaps him and puts him on the boat to help him chase the Crystal Slipper. Mm Mm-hmm. Mac is fucking nuts. When we meet Mac, he's basically planning on killing and eating some of the birds on the boat. And he's talking about something called an intergalactic Rosetta Stone. Like, he's just fucking sun-baked fucking insane. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't get any better once they sail into a hurricane. Because Dan thinks he's going to die. But Mac actually falls over. And Dan rescues him, but also kind of loses his mind in the process. At one point, he screams, I'll sail this boat right into your black heart at a hurricane. And a reminder, he's in high school. (laughs) So he's having like a real mental fucking break. And even though they survived the hurricane, the engine blows. So Dan's like, fuck it. And he jumps off the boat. This whole movie is really a testament to patience. Like, if you're just a little bit patient... (laughs) You probably will get where you're going more than if you freak out and jump off of boats and land right in the hands of the local authorities. Yeah, this this movie is also a testament to the desperation of teen horniness. hundred fucking percent. <laughs> the things this man is willing to put himself through just to get a little bit of sex yeah. is truly encapsulates what the 80s were all about. Yeah, because the idea that he and this Mac character would even be in the same orbit is a testament to, you know, kind of his desperation to get laid, essentially. <laughs> it is That's, wild. <laughs> that that whole hurricane part reminded me very much of the Lieutenant Dan uh, sequence from Forrest Gump where... <laughs> Like, Mac is essentially a white guy that's lived um, in an island nation for way too long. Looks like a piece of beef jerky. Oh, absolutely. And he's just a lunatic. And (laughs) he's, like, screaming at Mother Nature in the same way that Lieutenant Dan is, like, screaming during the hurricane in Forrest Gump. And I was just like, wow. Like, (laughs) this is a character now. There's two characters 
in movie history that have screamed at hurricanes, at least. This is a trope. We're going to put it in our Elizabeth and Eddie Money movie. (laughs) They're not like Wibcoms. They're like, we have to come up with another term for like, who is the grizzled older guy who screams at hurricanes on a boat? (laughs) (laughs) And in the future, that person is going to be Chris Pine. I can just see Chris Pine in one of those roles. You fucking mailed him. Absolutely. <laughs> Chris Pine. He is, he is the, of the, this generation of actors, he is the one who will take on that role. Oh, because he's craggy hot royalty. Like he's, er, he's like an early adopter of the craggy hot lifestyle. And he is definitely rolling into that mode in his 60s and 70s. Are you kidding? <laughs> he is the new Robert Loja. Let's get serious. I can't wait. I can't wait. And it, look, things just keep get like escalating and popping off. Like after Dan gets arrested, essentially, Mac busts him out of jail by just dynamiting the fucking jail, <laughs> <laughs> like you just and stealing a police car. That'll do it. This is also where we learn that Chris, the Ben Stiller character, has basically hijacked. He hijacked Mac's boat last year, and he's very dangerous. So we come to learn more about him. He's not actually the captain of this boat. He's, you know, a very dangerous character, as is Jerry Stiller, who plays Victor Honeywell. Mm -hmm. You know, they meet him kind of casually on a—the family meets him casually at at a beach bar, and he ends up being a very dangerous character as well. So Dan essentially gets put in the place towards the end of the film where he has to save this family, which will finally put him in in the dad's good graces, right. but only after he's been stabbed and jailed and has been through hell and all he can think about is, like, boning this guy's daughter. So <laughs> it's a really delightful—to me, it's a delightful summer film in a lot of ways. It's just—it's a quick watch. It just—it's hilarious. It just keeps going. And I love movies that just keep escalating um, to the point of absurdity. And look, Johnny Cusack, never been hotter, would still destroy the D. And— mm. We can never have him as a guest on this show now because I've now said that twice. <laughs> Every member of the Cusack family is banned from listening to this podcast. <laughs> I keep just cutting us off at the ankles with our relation <laughs> to the family of actors we love the most because I cannot stop talking about how much I want to bang their brother. They're too, you're too horny for these folks. Also, Gregory Peck's family is not allowed to be. Yeah. We're we're gonna get to a point where there's not a person who is related to anyone in Hollywood who's allowed to listen to our fucking podcast. I'm seeing a pattern between Kevin Klein, John Cusack, and Gregory Peck. What's this you pattern? Lo- you're loving a tall, dark-haired sex pot. You're just loving I do. It. I love a brooder. I love a, a broody, a broody, brown-eyed, fucking mopey piece of shit. Yeah. I look, this was a absolute unknown to me before <laughs> you pitched it. I was like, Hot Pursuit. Have I even <laughs> heard of that movie? What is this movie? And and then when I found out it was a John Cusack movie, I was like, what the fuck? Like I was actually really surprised that I had never heard of it. <laughs> but it's it's perfect. It's a perfect summer film, I think, for multiple reasons, right? Because it's like a kind of like a like a teen film. There's a lot of island locations, a lot of boats, but then there's like it's it's kind of got that like madcap quality to it. It's like a a quest movie. 
Mm-hmm. And you're right. John Cusack is so cute in it. And, you know, I like that he's a, he's a little action-oriented. Like, there was a, a part, like, towards the end of the film when he's, like, trying to save the family where he puts this, like... I don't know if it's like a bandolier or something across his chest, and he looked kind of—it's kind of like a Rambo nod. And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> he's not just you know a brooding, moody teenager with a, a gym bag. He's uh, he's got a machine gun. He's, he's like, got a fucking bandolier of grenades, and he uses yeah. his tie to tie it around his forehead to keep the sweat out of his eyes while he's wreaking havoc. Yeah, I kind of loved seeing him like that. He wasn't just you know crying in front of a girl's window. new pitch John Cusack is the new John Wick what (laughs) yeah I was like damn man they should have made him a little bit more of these characters but anyway I I really enjoyed it I I thought it was perfect I definitely saw you picking this film 100% I'm so So. glad you liked it especially since you'd never seen or even heard of it yeah oh it's 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 such a great it's such an 80s teen film like I just was like oh my god this is so perfect but um and and I, it actually was like the reason why I picked my film in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got to talk about your film. Oh, Let's of get course. Into it. I mean, this was this was a late entry. As you know, I I kind of came up with this at the last minute, but it was definitely because I was like, "Huh, what's Danielle's movie for this week?" Oh, interesting. Maybe I'll pick a film that is a slight homage to that genre. We'll see. And very complimentary. Yes. So, my film for this month, this Hot Movies Month, we're calling it Hot Movies Part Deux this week, is a movie from 2001. It was written by David Wayne and Michael Showalter. It was directed by David Wayne, and it's called Wet Hot American Summer. Four campers are stuck in the ropes course. I meant to tell you about that yesterday. Could you get to it now? You t- Let's talk about the state a little bit more. Because <laughs> I, yeah. I am... So, when I was a kid, I was, like, such a dork for, like, sketch comedy. I think a lot of people were. And oh, are. yeah. I... What so I was not gonna lie, I was pretty much a complete and utter stand for the kids in the hall almost mm-hmm. exclusively. Like I just was like, there are, there's nobody better than the kids in the hall. This is the funniest show I've ever seen. I did love SNL. I think SNL everybody loved SNL, but then you know, for me from my heart, it was there could be only one group of guys, and it was the kids in the hall. However, I remember when the state came out. I want to say I was I was in high school when they came out, right? Because it was like kind of yeah. early mid nineties, and I immediately was like, "They're the coolest people ever." They were of our gener. They were they were of our generation. They were Gen Xers, yeah, but slightly older, early twenties when they you know they started the state when they were all students at NYU, so they were all in their early twenties when they had this TV show, and they were they brought a level of absurdity to sketch comedy that had heretofore not been seen. Yeah. And I, like, there, there is, there are endless sketches that I could reference here, but right. one in particular is called Porcupine Racetrack, and I can sing the entire song from memory <laughs> right now. And that is what, like, they use their production budget to make the most insane fucking things that were also so goddamn funny. Yeah. They were they were perfect for MTV because it was like they were young. They looked kind of alternative. It was like a bunch of like shaggy haired, cool New York people smoking cigarettes and like, you know, and then the theme song was done by, you know, the lead Ugh. singer of Shudder to Think, who was a band that I loved. And Craig so, Wedron. Yeah. Uh, and, and 
and he actually did the, some of the music for Wet Hot American Summer too. But it was like this whole vibe of them that I really was like, oh my god, they're like of, they're like us, you know, Absolutely. stars. They're just like us. So when this movie came out, I was really like, I mean, I really wanted to see it because of that lineage, because of the state, you know. However, <laughs> I think when I saw it in two thousand one. I didn't really like it very much. I have yeah. to admit that. Um, That's fair. And I and so part of me picking this film this week was because I wanted to give it a second shot. Because here's the thing: I there were probably reasons why I didn't like it. I think I was expecting a lot because of that, because of the state. And it's not like the state. No, a lot, it's it's similar comedy vibes, but very different. Yeah, very different. I don't think at the time I was kind of clued into what they were parodying i think as much as i am now Mm -hmm. but i also felt like i was completely on the wrong side of history because like even though this movie was you know a commercial and critical flop when it came out this movie is so beloved by people and i think is a cult classic at this point i mean i know so many people who adore this movie i went on letterboxd just to kind of get like a temp check of like, who do I know that loved this movie? And our producer, Casey O'Brien, gave it five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like I, I must be wrong. I need to like, I need to, you know, do a critical reappraisal of this film. Uh, Cause I was like, I'm missing something. But I will say, I think after watching it this time, especially after reading about it and kind of watching a few things about the making of the of the movie, I think I appreciate it now more than I did before. And, and trust me, it's not like the best movie by far. Sure, sure. I think it's, it's, there's a lot, it goes off the rails at one point to an astonishing degree. Yeah. I think Casey O'Brien actually said it was the best movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have to fight. So now you guys are, are going to debate about this for the rest of the episode. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'll I go into, I think, why I now like it. Because I think, I guess, like I said, I think it's just because now I know more than I did in 2001 as a mm-hmm. movie person, as a person who appreciates film. And I've seen so many films since 2001, too, that I can kind of put it in a different context, right? Yeah. Because so this movie, I mean, a one-sentence one synopsis is kind of like hard, but I will say I think... This movie is a like a parody or like a pastiche, if you will, of early 80s summer camp films. I think the obvious one is Meatballs, but mm-hmm. I also think there are elements of Sleepaway Camp. I know that's like a horror film, but I definitely think that the guy's tiny shorts thing from Sleepaway Camp was a big influence on... Wet Hot American Summer, oh a little Friday the 13th, you know, and, and like Little Darlings, which is my favorite kind of of this era. A little creep show, a little creep show. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a lot of um a lot of different things, but it has but it was like in general influenced by this early 80s summer camp horny teen film era, mm-hmm. right? And I had read that David Wayne and Michael Showalter had gone to these summer camps as kids, these, you know, Jewish summer camps. And I know at at one point we did talk about, you and I talked about how we never went to like a sleepaway camp as kids. Right. Yeah, my my only experience with camp 
was mild and terrifying. I went to uh, for a week every year in fifth grade, fifth and sixth grade in my school. In my year, it was sixth grade. They split the class and and half of the class went in the summer and half of the class went in the winter. And we went to a place called Ashokan, which I'm pretty sure was a children's work camp that we went to for a week. And we made like <laughs> fucking, yeah, like they're like, let's go and do some crafts. And I came home with a tin candle holder that I like banged out with a hammer, <laughs> a broom. I made a broom. I had to make Ooh. a broom with like you- actual like hay and sticks wow. and twine. Yeah. And it was a terrifying experience and my only experience with any kind of camp. And once I got home, I was like, thank God we're poor and you can't send me to these for more time. Yeah, I I definitely think, I think the primary reason I did not go to a sleepaway camp in the summer is because it was too expensive. I did, I, I mean, I went for like camping weekends with the Girl Scouts, but what I think traditionally... The what this film suggests, and like what I think maybe the experiences that the writers and directors of the film had were these multi week mm-hmm. summer camps where you pay, basically just got sent there at the beginning of the summer and then you came back at the end, which yep. seems insane to me. <laughs> like, I kept thinking about like, how would I be if I had to go to like a two month summer camp? Like, I would come back feral. Yeah. Absolutely feral. My my actually my grandmother and my great aunt used to go to a camp when they were kids and it was kind of it, it was an early iteration of like the city kids program where they would send kids from Harlem mm-hmm. to this camp. And um my grandparents had a lot of my grandmother had a lot of relatives that lived in Virginia and so she would spend part of her summer at this sleepaway camp and then the rest of her summer at on this farm in Virginia. And I have a bunch of the postcards that she and my great aunt used to send home from camp. And my great aunt, who's like a year and a half older, was always like, oh, this is great. Like, I'm making friends. Everything's fine. And then my grandmother, I am not kidding, every single postcard that she sent home was like, I can't believe you haven't sent me any candy. Like, she, her, <laughs> her whole summer experience was rocked by the fact that she could no longer just walk down to the bodega and get candy. And she could yeah. not believe her parents put her in a place where she did not have access to candy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is what it seemed so wild to me is that it felt so removed from, you know, you're in the woods. You're like in Maine. I guess this this camp was supposed to have been in Maine. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know if I would... I, I think socially, I don't know. I kept thinking about this in terms of social shit and I was like oh I'd either be like the nerd who was hiding mm-hmm. you know in the bunk while everybody was out there in bathing suits because I was afraid to get in a bathing suit or I'd be like the fucking Bobby Butnick of the thing where everybody thought I'd like killed someone and I'd be like smoking cigarettes with like a like a fucking blue jean vest you know everybody <laughs> would either be scared of me or they'd make fun of me I didn't feel I I was like there's no way I would have integrated into this social shit no. whatsoever. So Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would have I would have floundered immediately and yeah. consistently in a sleepaway and, camp. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think we can I can confidently say about both of our, the people that watched over us, they would not pick us up. Like they'd be like <laughs> you're sitting there ah! and you're putting up with it and like we're not picking you up. I don't care if you call every fucking day. 
They wouldn't even pick me up from a goddamn sleepover down the street if I was having a hard time falling asleep in someone else's house. They're like, too bad. You wanted to fucking go to Meg's house and have a goddamn sleepover. Exactly. This is the experience you're going to have. Too bad. I'm like, you live two minutes away. Nope. They're already like playing cards with their friends and getting drunk. They're not coming to get us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're like, we're liquored up. You're going to have to take a cab. Uh, But, uh... Yeah, I just, it's so interesting. It, uh, this movie obviously makes you think about camp because it, it it takes place, the whole movie takes place in like one day, essentially. Right. And it's, and the, it's last, the last. Yeah, it's the last day of camp in 1981. And so this film, I think most memorably, is stacked with like famous people, now famous people who, you know, when they made the film, they weren't so famous, right? I mean, it was kind of like, I would say almost like the dazed and confused of the early 2000s in that way, Mm -hmm. right? So I'll just like read you off who's in this fucking film because it's stacked, right? So you've got like Jadine Garofalo. She she plays the kind of camp director. I You know what really hit me, I have to say, sidebar about this film is maybe this is too much to bite off right now, but... I'm going to just bring it up because I have to. Oh, shit. I hate how Janine Garofalo was always typecast as like a frumpy, dowdy character Mm -hmm. because she is fucking beautiful and hot. (laughs) And I was like in her little hippie shirt and her jeans. And her little braids. I was like, she's hot as shit. (laughs) Like, what, why are we tripping about this? Like, are we going to just... I know she's our Gen X queen, and I know that she's real, you know. But also, she's attractive and hot. So can yeah. we stop this, please? And she, I think she's talked about this in some of her more recent stand-up. But, you know, even that movie, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, where she was cast with Uma Thurman and was considered to be the dowdy, frumpy, ugly one. Yeah. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? First of all, you put anyone next to Uma Thurman and they're instantly going to look like hell, comparatively. But you right. take Uma Thurman out of the picture. They're cute. And even next to Uma Thurman, she was adorable and funny and smart and cool. And every role that I saw her in the 90s, I thought the same exact thing. Where I'm like, why are you making this incredible woman into this undesirable kind of chunk yeah. When she's nothing like, she was not like that to us. We didn't see her that way. No. And, and it, like, she's so cute in this film. And I'm not saying she, like, I think she's cute and gets to be the camp director. Like, I'm just sort of like, don't make those things mutually exclusive. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Like, mm-hmm. anyway. So that was my immediate thought. Justice for this, <laughs> for this character but she's the camp director. She's in love with a scientist who is played by David Hyde Pierce. And I have to say, he he might be my hottie of the film. I don't know what it is. I was like, I kind of love this like mustachioed, thick glass glasses with the tiny little shorts. I'm like, I don't know. I'm feeling David Hyde Pierce in this movie. That is unsurprising to me because, as you know, I, I I don't like muscles. And so in a movie where Ken Marino is running around in short shorts, the fact that you're like, David Hyde Pierce, though, not surprising to me at all. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel I the mean, same way. And he's so fucking funny in this movie. 
I'm telling you, I, I talked about Fred Ward being the hottie and tremors for me now. I'm like, fuck Paul Rudd. I'm like, David Hyde Pierce, hello. Like, <laughs> again, sex, it tracks. Sexy legs on David Hyde Pierce. <laughs> But you, so then, you know, you've got the kind of everyman character whose name is Coop. He's played by Michael Showalter. He's in love with this woman, Katie, who is probably the manic pixie dream girl of the film, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe her. Uh, but then Katie is invariably in love with this guy named Andy, who is played by Paul Rudd. He is a straight up psychopath. This is my favorite Paul Rudd character, period. <laughs> when he, at one point, he grabs the pole in the lunchroom and swings around and just gives her his own girlfriend the finger. <laughs> it is like, I don't know why. He is such the quintessential 80s shithead in this movie, but he is so fucking funny. There's a point where he drops his tray and oh Beth makes him pick it up, and he's like, it just has a tantrum like a child. Paul Rudd is actually funny. He is yes. hot and funny. He's one guy who can do it. I, I I absolutely agree. He, like, and his character is an exaggeration of an actual type of fucking teenage boy. Completely. That I experienced when I was growing up, who is the guy that's like, saying, fuck you, bitch, and then five seconds later is like, I love you, call me later. Like, <laughs> He's like, a fucking demon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely unhinged. Like, no, like, no consistency whatsoever. And that was teenage boys in a nutshell. They were, like, oh, punching yeah. you in the face and then being like, I love you, let's go to prom. And you're like, what? Just emotionally erratic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's he is definitely that that character. Oh, no. But then you have this other character who I believe is a absolute stock Molly Shannon character, <laughs> who is Molly Shannon plays this like lonely, recently single woman <laughs> who <laughs> seeks comfort from like middle school kids basically like she's supposed to be teaching these kids and letting them do arts and crafts and they end up counseling her <laughs> throughout the film this is wild as fuck this is maybe the wildest like part of this film for me about like the kid that gives her the back massage and then like she ends up marrying him <laughs> would never pass would never pass but just the idea that they took it there is so so insane, but also so Molly Shannon. Like, Molly totally. Shannon is, like, that to a T. Like, let's just go that extra mile. That's what this. I mean when I say, like, this movie goes off the rails yes. in a way that you do not expect in so many ways. Yes. Um, then you have who I think is probably the MVP of the film, and I think that attitude is a, is a common one amongst people who love this film, but Christopher fucking Maloney... <laughs> Plays Com this scary-ass ex-Vietnam cook named Gene. Playing completely against type. If you yeah. have only known him as Stabler, you are going to be rocked. Yeah. He, he wears a crop top sweat sweatshirt. Yes. Happy trail is fucking out there. We Belly out is there. out while he's cooking. Belly is out. Bandana is on. 
He he believes that he can communicate with this can of vegetables. <laughs> At one point, he mounts a refrigerator and like starts humping it. I mean, it's like it is wild. Oh god! But a lot a lot of people love his character in this film. I would say. Oh yeah. You also have. Michael Ian Black, who is also from the state, he plays this character, McKinley. You know, he's the guy, like, everybody makes fun of for being a virgin, and they're trying to get him laid. But little do they know, he's actually gay and doesn't want to have sex with women. (laughs) But they do show him fucking Bradley Cooper. Oh, yeah. An epic love scene between him and Bradley Cooper. And by the way, to that point, Bradley Cooper, this was his first film. He just graduated from, like, the actor studio when he made this movie. And him and Amy Poehler play these kind of, like, uptight, preppy wasps, I would say. And they're, like, really in a musical theater. Bradley Cooper is very, like, even though I hate that kind of ultra-preppy, like, I don't know, sort of, like, northeastern sailboat guy look... It looks great on him. And in he this movie, he looked great. Right? Yeah, he pulls it off. I, he is very believable in this role. Yeah, yeah. As that um, dude. And Amy Poehler is fucking hilarious. She is every theater kid turned director. Yeah. Just an absolute tyrant. I was watching, there's a documentary that was made about the making of the film. I think it's called Hurricane of Fun. I, I actually found it on Vimeo. I guess David Wayne, the director, he put it on his own Vimeo channel. It's this like hour-long documentary where they took all the behind-the-scenes footage of, of you know, making the film and they kind of edited, edited it together. Essentially, one of the best things about that documentary is that they talk about how this movie, they the people who made this movie, the actors, the crew actually lived at summer camp. Like, they filmed it at an actual summer camp. They lived like campers. They all, like, stayed in bunks and shared bathrooms and Wild. ate camp dinner and stuff. But it, I think it was, like, part of why everybody looks like they're having a lot of fun in the movie is because they kind of lived it while they were filming it, right? Mm-hmm. And the there are scenes where Amy Poehler is, like, the camp sweetheart where you're just watching her behind the scenes and she's like, she's got her like early two thousands, like riot girl adjacent haircut. And she's so cute and she's kind of bopping around and she's making everybody laugh. And you're like, Oh, Amy Poehler is like comedy's sweetheart. Right. Absolutely. And well-deserved. She is truly funny, like just naturally and truly funny. And just really is in it for the good time and for the joke. And and there's one point in the film where she's playing the piano and she just turns around and starts playing it like with her hands behind her back. Just simple, like just simple things that she does that heighten every scene and is just a, like an actual delight of a person. And I've, I've met her a couple of times and she is truly that way in real life. Like she is just a delightful person. Yeah. She, so she definitely seems that way for sure. And, you know, who else is in this movie? A very, very, very early role. She doesn't really have a ton of lines, but Elizabeth Banks is in this movie, who, like, I read on her Wikipedia, she's made, like, over 200 things. (laughs) I was like, wow. shit. She's still, like, pretty young, and she's made a lot of of TV and film and whatnot. So I was like, holy crap. But, yeah, she was, you know, she's in the film kind of one of these, like, camp hotties, if you will. But, yeah. It's also the addition of these these actors who, again, were not famous at the at that point in time. 
um, but you start to see a glimmer of who they were going to be that made it something special and also really took it out of the world of the state for me because so many people from the state were not in this movie. So Carrie Kenny Silver was not in this movie and Michael Patrick Jan and like there are a bunch of people who were, and you know, Kevin Allison, people who were in the state because they had 11 people in that group who were not in this movie. So they were kind of clearly trying to take their brand of humor, but turn it into something else. And I think that the addition of these, you know, other actors kind of helped round that out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, peppered in, you do have, like, Ken Marino and Joe Latruglia, like, people who were in the state. But, yeah, you're right. It wasn't, like, an absolute, like, all the all the members were in the film in some way type of thing. No. Um, also, I have to say, I forgot to say this about Andy, the Paul Rudd character. My favorite running joke for that character is that he just lets a bunch of kids die. Because yeah. he's, <laughs> he's too busy making out. Too busy making out. Well, and, like, this is the chief observation that I had re-watching the film is that there are actual kids <laughs> in this movie alongside <laughs> these, like, like it's so funny to me to think that all these, like, little kid extras are in this, like, extremely horny send-up of, like, an 80s camp movie. I want that behind the scenes. Like, what was your experience filming and living with these fucking weirdos? Like, did they go to the premiere or something? And then, like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, look, it's the Bradley Cooper, Michael Ian Black sex scene. And they were like, oh, I was in this movie? (laughs) Were they even allowed to watch the movie they were in? That's what I was saying. I was like, they probably weren't even able to watch it until much later. And they were like, oh, I was in this movie. Crazy. That is so fascinating to me. It's And the, the kids are also very funny. Like, there's this one kid who runs the radio show, quote unquote, even though eventually realize that everything's unplugged and he's just been sitting in a room talking to himself all summer. And they are trying to force him to take a shower because he hasn't taken a shower all summer. He's hilarious. And again, that's kind of a nod. Like David Wayne had a big broadcast radio part of his his childhood. So it's kind of a nod to their own personal lives. And it's just so funny. But the kids themselves were hilarious. There's this one, there's a scene when you first meet Coop and all the kids in his bunk wake him up by like singing, is it Jukebox Hero? Oh, I don't I think remember. It is. Yeah, but they're maybe. like escalating the sound, and they're like just and just waking up to these fucking children just going ape at seven o'clock in the morning seems like what camp probably was like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like something else that I thought was pretty true to life too about this movie was that so the general gist of the movie, like it's hard to kind of like I said it's hard to kind of talk about the plot because one thing I will say that I feel like is something now that I actually appreciate, which I thought was a negative back in 2001, which is that it's not like this completely linear storyline all the time in this movie. It's kind of just bopping around with all the different characters, right? Mm -hmm. And I read that David Wade and Michael Showalter wanted the movie to feel a little like Robert Altman's Nashville in that way, which when I, I know it's, it's, it's hilarious to think that those two movies could be like stylistically linked in some way. But I, I see it actually when I, when I saw this film again, like I was like, Oh, maybe I didn't get that in 2001. I didn't understand. Like I thought the pacing was off and I was like, I don't know what it is about this movie, but then knowing that I'm like, Oh, okay. Like now that makes sense. There's a lot of characters and you got to kind of, Go Definitely. down their little roads separately. You Definitely. Know? But I will say, I think the one thing the movie does is that it kind of crescendos to this talent show, 
so the end of end of camp talent show that is hosted by my favorite character in this movie who is this old Borscht Belt comedian named Alan Shemper. Oh my god. Alan Shemper is played by Michael Showalter and he was at camp so long ago. It was the Stone Age. No, it was the Ice Age. That that character is so good. And it it is not he's not in the film very long, but just the idea that he would be the MC. And then like you see all everybody in the crowd it, like he'll he'll tell his like really bad jokes and then everybody in the audience is like falling over themselves laughing, <laughs> which cracks me up. <laughs> there's one point, there's two things that I still to this day say to myself from that character where at one point he's like, I, I was in camp so long ago, fucking Jesus Christ was there with me. <laughs> and then at one point he introduces the talent portion for the kids. And he's like, they're going to be singing a, call, a song called Day by Day. <laughs> and I say, not day by day, day by day. And I just say that to myself all the time for no reason. Yeah, I think I think the aughts and thoughts and crafts line is really popular with people. And But uh, yeah, so yeah, this, I mean, the whole thing about this movie is it's goofy as shit. It's, it's filthy. You get the sense, though, that everybody's having a great time making it. I mean, wh- like I said, I think when I first saw it, I thought it was a little odd. I thought the pacing was weird. But then the weirdest part to me is that now, since then, I've watched so many of these kind of camp movies, and I realized... All of them are like this. Like, all mm-hmm. of them are paced like this. Like, all, actually, I will say, a lot of early 80s comedies have this pacing where it's, they have a lot of characters to follow. Each one of them kind of has their own kind of goofball moment. It's not like Hot Shots, right? Where it's, there's like a, a joke a second. Right. But, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a Caddyshack type of experience where you're like, oh, like, it's goofy, but each there, there's a lot of different storylines, and it's not like completely like stacked in this like linear narrative structure. I don't know. Mm-hmm. To me, I think being older, being more wise about film, and simply having seen more film made me like weirdly reappreciate Wet Hot American Summer, and I don't know why that is, but it is. That's cool. I think it's a great. Again, we always encourage people to go back and rewatch and. Whatever the situation is that has you rewatching the movie sometimes influences what you think about it. But I think it's cool that you're able to take some different value from it this time around. I, I I definitely agree. And I will say for the record, the most authentic thing in this film is that jug of sun tea on the porch. <laughs> My mom made the fuck out of some sun tea in the 80s, man. Like that specific jug. Oh, yeah. That jug. I don't know if that was like a Tupperware jug or where people got that jug. Everyone had the jug, the fork and spoon on the wall, and a wicker fan. (laughs) And that was summer. And you just filled that thing with fucking Lipton tea bags. No other kind of tea will do. It's Lipton tea bags. Yeah. And just sit it outside for the months. You let that shit cook in the sun and then... Three months later, you might have a glass of iced tea. 
<laughs> the most inefficient way to make a beverage ever. I thought about making some sun tea this summer because I get a real, there's a, a spot on my porch upstairs that gets so much sun. It's so bright and hot up there. And then I realized two things. One, if I set out a jug of sun tea and it's not in that jug, will it really be sun tea? Exactly. Also, I could just go and buy iced tea now. I <laughs> I am currently Googling the origins of sun tea. <laughs> I won't do the actual research on it right now on Mike. I'll thank have you, to thank spend, you. The, spend the rest of the weekend reading about it. But I will say this. I think we should offer sun tea jugs on our merch. <gasps> Look, I'm here for it. Everyone, Look, sun tea had everyone in a fucking ch- chokehold in the 80s, and it's time to bring it back. I'll make sun tea if we can do it in an I saw what you did jug. Oh, my God. We're going to have to fire off some emails after we stop recording. <laughs> I'm, everyone is going to be like, let's listen to this episode and see what these fucking idiots are talking about. Listen. <laughs> To, so to that end, if you want to buy a, su- a I saw what you did sun tea jug to make sun tea, just email us at oh, I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. If we get enough support, maybe we can actually make it. <laughs> I think actually don't email us. We'll put up a poll. Yes. Check, in- check Instagram this week. We'll put up a poll tomorrow. And tell us if you want the sun tea jug. Okay. <laughs> Holy shit. I That would probably be a highlight for my life if that were to actually happen. <laughs> but look, we're having fun on these episodes. The hot train keeps moving. In the meantime, if you want to email us, just generally, we are at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. And you can find us on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you click on our Instagram link tree, you will also still see the P.O. Box address if you want to send us handwritten letters. A lot of people might be at camp right now listening to this episode. <laughs> if you want to send us a letter from camp, go for it. Oh, my God. I would absolutely love a camp letter. You can tell us if you want to that you hate it and want to come home. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure we can come pick you up, but well, you can tell. You can tell us that you've been smoking marijuana. We won't tell your mom and dad. We'll send you candy at least if we yeah. can. If it's allowed, <laughs> if you're allowed to receive mail, we'll send candy. Right. Well, we do have merch. On that note, it is in the "I Saw What You Did" section of the Exactly Right shop. And our our bonus episodes are coming out fast and furious. The old episodes are being posted every week or two uh, on the main feed. And so you don't even have to, they're not behind a paywall anymore. You don't have to do anything except look out for them. And then our new bonus episodes are every Thursday, every third Thursday of the month. Perfect. Now, next week's movies, I would say, are not just hot, but they are smoldering. Ooh, tell them what the movies are. The movies for next week are Some Like It Hot from 1959 and The Long Hot Summer from 1958. Beautiful. Cannot wait. Cannot Cannot wait. wait. I'm going to go make some sun tea right now. 
Absolutely. And hope that the squirrels in my house don't just carry the fucking container off into the woods. <laughs> They're like, thanks for the tea, bitch. Peace. Danielle, it is always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it. Bye. <laughs> See ya, suckers. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.